0: Everyone, and welcome to this week's FinTech for the People. I'm Matt Shah, operating partner here at Axion Venture Lab, and in this season, we're discussing one of the more intriguing topics in FinTech today: Web three, blockchain, and crypto, and their potential impacts on financial inclusion. Today, I'm joined by Sam Eob. Sam's the Chief Information Officer at Warbler Labs, which builds and maintains Goldfinch a decentralized collateral-free platform for cryptocurrency-based small business lending. In our conversation, we'll cover topics related to Goldfinch's origins, whether Sam considers himself a crypto maximalist, and where this type of platform can be used to help bridge the massive credit gap for small businesses worldwide. Sam, welcome to FinTech for the People, and we're excited to have you.
1: Thank you, thank you very much.
0: Well, I thought I would start off with just getting a better sense of the overall origin story of Goldfinch and talking about where, where you've been and where you are today, sprinkling in a bit with Warbro Labs history.
1: Well, uh, like with many good origin stories, it starts off with friends. And so what I can start off with is the origin story as it relates to the founders, Blake and Mike, but then I can sprinkle in in terms of how our relative visions of people from like completely different backgrounds have a view with regards to you know what brought us together in the context of a vision. And ultimately, like really just starting with the vision really is there's a shared vision for helping drive financial inclusion around the world and really helping to reformat the debt capital markets because it's just too insanely hard to get access to debt capital, which in most places, especially south of the equator or as I'll call them global south, is the fuel that's needed to help spur economic growth, especially when you're thinking about this from you know, bottoms up perspective. So that's the view and the you know, mission that, that really is, is is galvanizing the folks that I'm, I'm working with. And with regards to the two founders, Blake and Mike, essentially they've go back years and years and years, have known each other for a very long time. At some point, they were both working at Coinbase. One was an engineer, another one was a, was a product manager. And essentially, in their, from their own perspective, what they ended up seeing was there's all this capital sloshing around in the crypto space. And so they see capital on one side. And then the other side, they're seeing generally, you know, in the real world, there's just a lot of places where that capital could go to really help drive positive, real-world, productive use cases. And so essentially, they're, you know, they're, they're, the idea was like, what if we could build basically the infrastructure layer um, that helps bridge capital on one side with all the things that come along with Web3 and smart contracts and community and all of that out into the real world and then help deploy that into places that have some sort of positive impact, but also yield as well. And that's basically you know, more or less the origin story that had brought them together. And then from my own perspective, my origin story, though, goes way back to even well, well before goldfinch family actually hails from East Africa in terms of Ethiopia, so something like that's always been in my mind. And having think thinking about home, preferably speaking, is just financial inclusion and how basically fair access to, to capital is a pre in my view a prerequisite for solving what you could call like. Baseline Maslow's hierarchy, such that you take those issues off the table, that provides people the then capacity to think about other things um, in life with regards to like aspirations that you might have. So, I started a career, went down like a more traditional path of, um, well, I only had the options of being a banking lawyer, doctor. I went down the banking path, working at Goldman, was in the UK for a good while. At some point, wanted to move and do something a bit more meaningful. I moved to East Africa and to Kenya joined Lendable, which at the time was very early on with regards to helping provide access to debt capital to early stage fintechs to help bridge that debt gap that was there. After about five or six years and working with a team to scale it up um, to lend across Africa and then Southeast Asia and Latin America, I basically met Blake and Mike just serendipitously. Um, and my origin story in terms of also with the to Crypto was uh, I f- you know, I was, as COVID was happening, there were many issues with regards to how to lend and invest and partner with teams in many different countries where there were currency controls, capital controls, just other macroeconomic issues at hand. And I ended up finding out that, you know, in some places people were, were using the crypto rails, um, for very speaking, like Bitcoin, as a means of remittances. So no one really, you know, at that time, they didn't really care about Bitcoin per se. It was more so, I can take my fiat use Bitcoin rail, send someone Bitcoin in the country that they're in, then they can convert that into fiat to do something that they need to do. And then I was thinking like, oh, what if you could reverse that in terms of bringing the capital back? So meaning if there's issues with repayments, because there are plenty of countries where there are great teams that we would want to lend to and partner with. It's just that more so the macroeconomics in the context of maybe central banks or other policy issues was standing in the way of partnering with teams who are doing really good and like on their own merits um, could support what you wanted to help them build. So I thought, oh, what if I could ride these rails back in terms of they, can't, they hit some issue with making repayments normally, they ride the crypto rails, and then I was like, well, I don't really know anything about the crypto rails. So I started asking around. And next thing I know, I just meet Blake and Mike. And, you know, a year and a bit later, here we are in terms of Goldfinch really being a credit protocol that's helping to drive financial inclusion in the context of providing debt capital to now, I think, Goldfinch has been, has been across like 25-ish countries, having lent out about 100-ish million dollars effectively over the course of one year mainly focus on putting that capital into the hands of either credit funds who in turn act as like the delegates who understand the local context of a particular region country whatever it might be or directly to fintechs ultimately as these fintechs are integrated into the local societies and providing the products or services that are really just missing and that's effectively how Goldfinch came about. And then just to add on in the context of Warbler Labs, Warbler Labs is the, you know, I am working with Warbler Labs, but um, Warbler Labs basically spun out of Goldfinch, which is now fully community owned. You can literally, it literally is a DAO, um, but Warbler Labs is essentially a combination of the early founding team and contributors to help build Goldfinch and essentially is working to help support the growth of the protocol.
0: You've seen a lot of different areas of the financial sector, but also financial inclusion. So I'd be curious, uh, just for someone who doesn't have the context around how small businesses and even founders of startups are, are are excluded from traditional financial services, maybe paint a little bit of the picture, maybe speaking to your experience in Ethiopia or elsewhere of what, what kind of situation – that individuals and small businesses are facing that make it necessary to find new ways to provide access to capital for them.
1: So that's yeah, an amazing question. And like what I'm finding is like over the years, they spend more time, not just in Africa, but then in the Middle East or Latin America or Southeast Asia, but even in the US to be very clear is there's so many people who are effectively like credit invisible, meaning, at least in my own context is to whatever the traditional form is, to assess a person's ability to pay or willingness to pay just doesn't exist. So therefore, it's just easier to effectively say as a person who is investing, like, I don't want to really spend time here. I don't know what's going on. The main places I go to tell me if this is a good or bad decision aren't aren't available. So therefore, I'm a default to a bad decision. So I don't want to do the extra work. And the, you know, the amazingness that like that's with regards to like the alternative data that's out there that can be used to help figure out someone's ability to pay and willingness to pay really helps to then highlight across the globe, not just in the global South, that there are different measures that can be used to partner and lend to lots of great either individuals or small businesses, which effectively like a lot of these fintechs are doing through their local integrations. But more or less the name of the game is, can you use other sorts of data sets to really dispel the myth that small businesses, individuals are generally like doing something south of the equator is really scary. And if you can dispel that using alternative data, uh, then thinking about how much more global economic growth can you see? And really overall, like just bringing this to the context of Goldfinch and, uh, and our own views of like core beliefs, there's really I would say there's two core beliefs that the general team has. And there's one thing I add on to that with regards to my own personal belief. And the two real big beliefs are they really revolve around one is yield, two is wallets, and then three is credit infrastructure. And so on yield, it's generally everyone deserves access to high quality opportunities to help build their own wealth, whether it's putting in one equivalent dollar or 100 million dollars. In the current environment, rate hikes and all of that risk is like it it is going up more generally speaking. But essentially, like you know, we've gone through you know over a decade of having savings rates that were sub 1% in the global north and then even the global south. Like, if you take into account some um, inflation, uh, savings rates that might have even been negative or you know somewhere like that's sub 5%, not the best way to build wealth. And so, the core belief is like, okay, people are looking for wealth and there should be higher, like uh, easier access with regards to getting that. Second one is wallets. Wallets in the context of crypto wallets is can crypto wallets, and our view is like, yes, they can, but can't, uh, and the question being like, can crypto wallets become as ubiquitous as mobile money in the global South? It's just something that you don't even need to think about is like almost like embedded into whatever application or phone or service you're, you're using. And so these sorts of wallets Provide uh, access to actually being the on ramp of participating in these ecosystems, or the off ramps in terms of benefiting from these ecosystems. And then finally, on credit infrastructure, which is mine, is um, my my own personal view is it's uh, a part of the the wallet segment, but very simply is really speaking to some of the super early ideas around what can blockchain bring, and really is you know credit bureaus or ways to assess someone's ability to pay, like have they borrowed before, have they paid back before. That information is like really hard to find south to the basically south of the creator, especially even with credit bureaus that are out there. And so what if people who borrowed um, over time all that information was somewhere you can like technically exactly the blockchain where they anyone and can build their own credit history, anyone can then see that credit history and then you can essentially build the infrastructure layer that allows you to build reputations on top of it, build, credit scores on top of it or just flat out lend to someone based on that and so this is one of those things where like you know early ideas where blockchain can help with land registries was a really big thing especially in countries where you know there aren't really address systems another one just straightforwardly could be people can actually have on-chain histories related to their transactions and you know you can have as an infrastructure layer goldfinch can help build that by providing that capital and then anyone can build on top of it almost like money legos
0: I always like to get a test for for folks who are involved in the in the blockchain space to see how much of a maximalist you are and how and how like traditional systems actually can be complementary. So, for example, looking at a lot of the embedded finance models where someone is building a financial service on top of an existing platform, do you see blockchain-enabled solutions being complementary to that, or do you feel like that there's going to be a complete shift away from even those traditional models where embedded finance ultimately has to be part of the blockchain?
1: So this is where the beauty, in terms of having disagreements with my even my own team, is. I am absolutely not a maximalist. At least when it comes to the blockchain, I'm more of a maximalist when it comes to ultimately the end utility of what gets the job done to help the people who are who are in need of different sorts of services, like live live better, fulfilling lives. And so that's the that's the perspective I take with regards to how to approach any of these sorts of questions. And then so in this particular context is. Like in the context of open banking, and the context of embedded finance, and the context of just blockchain, Web three, DeFi is I see these all as different flavors that that should ideally be interchangeable or composable with one another to be able to provide and like a service. So the you know another like an amazing thing would be is like, what if you took embedded finance where you have a local operator in say a country like Brazil. And then they're using PICS to then basically help underwrite and understand an individual, whether it's a fintech or a bank, because then you have different participants who are able to plug into that system. Uh, and then you have the, the fintech act as like basically an acquirer, customer acquirer, customer management, relationship management on, on an ongoing basis. And then when it comes to actually getting source that the source of capital is then go on-chain, pull the capital um, from a protocol move that through, and then provide that capital to the end user. And then ultimately, the embed from a benefits finance maybe that turns these fintechs and serves them being capital-intensive, need to raise all sorts of debts, lets them be more of capital-efficient, more like a SaaS platform, providing a service, helps them with regards to like growing more quickly and uh, not being constrained by their ability to directly raise debt, People get money in their wallets. Like I was mentioning, uh, crypto wallets could be a quote ubiquitous like mobile money wallets. That means anyone can now write li- like loans to that person over time as they build credit history. And then effectively, now this information is also on chain as a public proof of record.
0: I'm kind of in the same, in the same boat where I'm seeing a lot of models where there's leverage of blockchain technologies to support a model that has traditional access points. So maybe the end customer is not having to convert crypto to fiat and then using that in, in local transaction. But, um, you know, case in point is with, uh, with Pula, which is one of our companies, and they're using refi to support a deeper reinsurance pool to support some of their existing insurance policies in the field. So I feel like that's an interesting model where it's not completely built on a on a blockchain slash Web3 centric model, but is actually complementing and enhancing their existing business model in a really effective
1: way. Wow, oh, that sounds amazing. Well, we'd love to learn more about them afterwards.
0: I will absolutely connect you with the Pula team after this. And we'll be right back. And welcome back to the show. Going back a bit to, uh, to Goldfinch, uh, and we talked about the origins, but I'd also be curious, as you've seen the protocol grow, I, I know you basically grew from 4 million in, in loans to over 100 million, I think at, at last last glance. Talk a bit around the a couple of things. One is how technology has evolved to I think really enable that scale so quickly, what you've seen as as innovations in the space that have allowed for that to happen. But then also when you think about just the challenge with that growth and maintaining an effective uh, scalable system that can handle that much transaction volume, what, what that journey has been like.
1: Thinking about this in the context of like, what, why now? Because many times you can have a great idea, but you can either be too early or too late. And so the why, in terms of the why now, I would break that up in terms of two buckets. Of One is technical capabilities, and then another one is basically human perception. And on technical capabilities, it really boils down to two sub points, is on and off ramps and stable coins. And so on and off ramps just, in plain plain English, is you, know, you can build whatever you want in this Web three space, like, but it really doesn't do anyone any good if no one actually has a way to on ramp into that or off ramp into that. And so, therefore, the advent of exchanges that are helping act as facilitators to basically move capital around to on ramp into from fiat to crypto and off ramp from crypto to fiat, that's been a massive gate. Which you know, let's say five six years ago, there were not many, but now it's almost you have regional champions that are acting as exchanges all around the world. It's not just relegated to the global north. And so that was the first major one. And I think very importantly is more exchanges, specifically in the global south, acting as the off-ramps would definitely be needed with much deeper liquidity because ultimately you know, one thing really, really keen on is like what would be potentially a game-changer is what if you could, through some way, shape, form, or fashion, have people who are supplying capital in currency X, fiat, whatever it might be, or 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 crypto, and ultimately, where the people who are borrowing can borrow it in their own currency, and maybe that means creating some sort of you know, intermediary hedging product, or maybe that means the exchange has just lots of deep liquidity in local currency, but ultimately, just from a practical perspective, is. Being able to off-ramp in the local currency, almost even if you had a a debt product that says, I borrow my own currency, just takes so many issues off the table with regards to understanding and perception of like, what is this product from a borrower's perspective, a company, an individual, just made it so much easier to understand um, versus saying like, here's something in some foreign currency, God knows how things work good luck with managing that risk so on and off ramps is one and the second one is stable coins so first we needed the on and off ramps which would be the rails to move stuff on and then stable coins are like well what's the what's the stuff that's moving on those rails and stable coins oddly enough you know in my joining uh, in the web 3 world is like very much seen as like oh this seems like a super new cool innovation yet yeah, in my mind like this has been around for over a decade is when I think of mobile money, literally is a mobile money provider whether it's a telecom or a bank says give me your fiat I will give you a digital representation of that and then you can go to some shop or whatever and use that and so stable coins were needed as the as the rails to use and the stable coin we end up choosing was USDC so that's backed uh, and mostly because it was 100% fiat backed so literally a US dollar in a bank is a US token and then it was backed then further by two organizations circling Coinbase who are, who are the most reputable at the time. And I think it's just like paid off because anyone that's, you know, do a little research on different types of stable coins, you start to see like, oh, they're not all built the same. So really technical on and off ramps as rails, stable coins is, um, is the stuff that moves on the rails. And then on perception, yield seeking. I, I think just more so seeing how crypto, DeFi, et cetera, can provide people yield, the very like, well, also acknowledging there's just a lot of crazy, um, crazy things that have been happening. I think the combination of people effectively being fed up with just sub 1% ability to create yield and seeing like, oh, there's an ability to create yield in different places in, in terms of building wealth. I think the combination of like, oh, I can see the rails work. There's now ability to get yield. Those two things combine, rails, stable, or three things combine rails, stable coins, and yields. Is what technically provided the on-ramp, if I can say, or the the scale-up factor, or allowed Goldfinch to scale up. And then, in terms of the hundred million dollar question, I think yeah, what's really mind-boggling is when I actually joined the you know, TVL or total value locked, which is like an equivalent of assets under management, like how much has been lent out, was at one million USD, and then that in actually only it was uh, ten months was able to scale to 102 million USD across the, like, the 25, six something like countries over like four continents, I think. But really though, it's like the things that, there were three massive things that were, that were always, that were challenges. And I think there's going to be evergreen challenges. The first would be product, second is risk, and third would be community. And so in product, it really comes down to like, yeah, you know, debt structures can be insanely elaborate And really trying to think about this from a product perspective, like how do you distill this down into what is the MVP that caters to the minimum requirements for both for thinking about this for investors, for the community and for borrowers in terms of like basically what gets the the job done. And so that was just a lot of work really when boiling it down, like what stays on chain, as they say, or in the blockchain space in the smart contract or really the, which is another term for like the code versus what's codified off chain in the real world agreements or meaning like in very plain speak is like the actual loan agreements that are that the people who are borrowing are signing up to you know playing like a seesaw between them and like maybe more of a move on chain maybe uh, or ideally more of a move on chain over time and uh, second was on risk yeah this one is well, as we can probably see looking back in the crypto space and the blow up was not something that's been at least in the US's mind or in people in, in, in some people in Europe's mind in regards to risk is, um, you know, if you offer people capital, almost like maybe like no strings attached or, or, or very easy to get, whether a person has malicious intent or not, they'll probably say like, yes, thank you very much. So it does speak to like everyone "Quote unquote," isn't like let's say maybe credit worthy to to uh, to some certain extent, Um, so it would have actually been pretty easy just to literally have a product that lends directly to individuals and SMEs. Actually, from a technical perspective, from the Goldfinch perspective, like all that really matters is a person has a wallet, and the protocol, Goldfinch protocol, can just put money in that wallet, and that could just be it. Meaning, like, literally an individual can have this. So as a matter of, like, what are the things you wrap around that wallet in terms of a product and services that are around that? And so thinking about this from an investor's job perspective, like, what are you meant generally meant to do is, like, you're meant to, like, raise money, you're meant to go invest the money, but ideally meant to also have it come back. And that third part is is um, super important, especially in terms of, like, raise it in terms of a, from a debt perspective, because you know, any one loss can have a massive outsized impact versus from an equity perspective, you can have a few things blow up, but something else can really ma- make up for it. Um, and so all this is to say is early stages of the protocol was really focused on finding partners to really work on a more of like a B2B2C model where it's, we know the end goal is to help individuals or small businesses. So that'd be the final C and like, how do we, how do you do that? And so a lot of the, um, Current borrowers and the protocol are actually credit funds, and it's like find different operators who either through their own fund or through prior very clear experience have local knowledge of rules, customs, regulations are regulated themselves, who can then be essentially the Sherpas whereby you're able to branch out whereby they can be a focal point to borrow, and then they can then delegate and pick different investments to make. And then those investments, i.e. different fintech operators, are then servicing tens of thousands of people. So through a B2B2C perspective, you know, get scale, but also through having some, re- like, relative form of safety. And then all of this, say, that over the course of the past year, say deployed, like, 102 million out, have had about, I think, 15 or 16 million has been repaid. There's been zero losses so far and across 26 or 27, something like that, countries. And then finally, community. What's the average loan size? It's been growing in terms of orders of magnitude. So as of right now, the weight average size is 7 million, but the way I'd frame it in terms of thinking was very early days of the protocol was more so loans that are somewhere between 100K up to a million. So about a year ago. And then over the past, let's say six months, now that's gone up to uh or, or five months in or six months in, that went up to five million. And then most recently the average size is somewhere between like I'd say like 10 million is the loans that are being made. And there's like one for 20.
0: Really, your core focus is some local provider of accessible financial services to an MSME, right? So you're kind of like the you're you're providing them with like a enough of a a good runway to deliver to perhaps thousands and thousands of customers. And I'm wondering, do you, do you even know like how many customers are serviced by, by, by all those loans?
1: Great question. I was, I wasn't even thinking about that. Um, yeah. So, so far based on the calcs that we we've seen, that's um, in a year, it's been about like 1.1 million and users or individuals or small businesses have been reached. And yeah, I'd go back, I would actually go back to your earlier point around like uh, uh, embedded finance is you can have an embedded player who's doing some sort of, like small business lending or remittances or whatever, or, or, or running mobile money shops or whatever it might be, mobile money agents, is they are the ones who can raise or I can have at least have like standby like pools of capital to draw upon, but ultimately that gets directed direct, like through them through their ability to locally source, locally manage, locally um, relate to um, end users and deploy that out to people that need it.
0: And you're just about to touch on the third pillar around community. So be curious to hear more about your, your approach there.
1: Yes. Yeah. So this is community, like a massive evergreen issue, which I think is not at all um specific to web three, but like, it's, it's very much um, a growing pain in the space, especially in the DAO space, but really is anything that can seem like a marketplace. You need all, I you might say uh, a saying is like, Oh, there's just multiple spinning plates and you have to, get them, maybe they have to all be spending at the same time or something like that. But effectively is the core components for Goldfinch are capital that's coming in. So different sorts of capital providers and understanding their interests and people representing their interests. Second one is general community that's helping build the cohesion with regards to what's going on, managing risk, and really just being engaged. And then the borrower side is having relevant borrowers with local expertise who uh, want to draw on and partner with this, with this uh, ecosystem. And so with community is just really drawing in the right humans um, with expertise who can participate and deploy, most importantly, like two things, not uh, you know, some people might think, oh, just deploying capital, getting money in the doors What's most, most important, but I'd say it's rather capital and knowledge. Because the knowledge it will help the community and uh, at large make better decisions about where to deploy, how to think about risk, and how to, you know, maybe community build what's you know, preferably best for the community.
0: Yeah, and on that on that note, I think there's a lot I think around education and 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 maybe a uh, one big final topic I wanted to to talk with you around is something you've alluded to around. A lot of the uncertainty that's been happening in the crypto space over the past, really the past year or so. There's always been these confronting questions around crypto and its sustainability. Uh, I think a lot of those have been elevated over the past few months with, um, you know, seeing things like Terra falling apart, stable coins that seem stable, no longer being stable or pegged to a currency, algorithmic stable coins. So, So with all of these things around uncertainty, when you think about really continuing to Emphasize this as, a, as an important element of financial inclusion, while also acknowledging the risks and the setbacks I think the crypto industry has had, and also conveying that to an end customer and the community as a whole. How are you thinking about that narrative? Uh, and also, what are you doing internally to really ensure that this is going to be a, a stable, long-form type of access to capital that wasn't available before, is not as available to everyone as it has been in the past?
1: So I'm gonna go back to the origin story here in terms of thinking about the the context of just the general you know, sort of crypto winter, and the origin story was a part of why the the two founders Blake and Mike were thinking about building this when they were sitting in in Coinbase was very much in addition to hey there's this thing that financial inclusion we can help bridge this capital off chain in the from the crypto world into the real world and drive some real world productive use case. A part of that, the reason for building the the bridge or the pipe to do that was the very early pre- uh, perception, which was all this stuff that's happening in the crypto world at that time, like two years ago, was like not at all sustainable and there's going to be a winter and it's going to be like, it's going to be terrible. And so like, what can you build to help show the capital a path to go to places that would be insulated from like what I would call a lot of like crypto money games. And so... The protocol literally was founded on, yes, there's financial inclusion, but also it's the get out and put this in somewhere that actually has some real-world productive use cases. All of the the things that happen um, through to whether it's Terra or Three Arrows or Celsius and whatnot, add zero impact on anything with regards to the quality of the borrowers in Goldfinch. Now, that doesn't say there's zero risk. It's just more so the risk isn't what's happening on-chain. The risk is just really in the real world because these are fintechs are operating in different countries many of them are south of the equator they've got their own macroeconomic issues to deal with there certainly are risks but the crypto risks to the extent of you know ethereum or bitcoin or whatever prices tumbling irrelevant so it really is like the starting point was built this in the context of wanting to drive financial inclusion but also to appreciating there's going to be a a deep winter deep freeze coming and then on top of that then to your point matt on education is feel as though i'm spending a lot of time in terms of doing education rather than rather than thinking about this as like from a an an investor's hat is thought leadership and really sort of like these sorts of conversations and sharing information and being as transparent like transparent in terms of letting people know what's going on how things are going and educating them, especially in the context, of people who haven't, who may be uh, on the fence about uh, investing either in these sorts of opportunities or just trying to understand what's going on south of the equator, because like you have a lot of tropes that you know generally um, you encounter when you come from like North America or, or Europe in terms of like looking at opportunities south of the equator, and really trying to just like paint a narrative and help people understand while there are risks, there also are like really great opportunities that also come along with how doing doing something productive in the world. And so I'd say those are the two main areas in terms of like trying to avoid the crypto money games is built this to be focused on the real world. So what happens, what's happening in terms of the all oh, the, the tumbling of different tokens hasn't affected Goldfinch in terms of the credit quality because lawsuits are still at zero. And then educating people in terms of understanding like what are you getting involved in? Why is this matter and how is this different? There's a
0: lot of, lot of great momentum moving forward, but is there something, whether it's regulatory, it's knowledge, it's technology that you think could, could really help you skyrocket and provide access to, to capital to people in, in need who haven't had access to it before? And what do you think that
1: would be? It's knowledge. Even if a trillion dollars were to come into this protocol tomorrow, you'd be left with where does this go? How does it get there? Who will manage this? And even like the technology is already there to help. And then from the technology perspective, like it's already there with regards to providing at the very least the MVPs of moving the capital around the missing piece from like a marketplace perspective in terms of community is more of a getting the relevant minds for each different subsegment of what, Goldfinch is looking to accomplish, to get interested, excited, and just even get this on their radar, such that they want to come participate, be fairly compensated to then deploy their knowledge, and maybe even capital in the context of understanding what is going on and sharing their insights and helping drive decision making, such that when, let's say, if a hypothetical like trillion dollars were to somehow descend into a protocol tomorrow, you have the human capacity available to then help steer this because in addition to that like even if every single existing borrower had massive massive deep deep data sets associated with them that you can scan and analyze and whatnot sure you can certainly automate a lot of work but having the local knowledge and context is really important so yeah people
0: well sam thanks for joining us today
1: appreciate it no worries thanks matt for having me
0: that's it for this week's episode. You can learn more about Goldfinch at goldfinch.finance or on Twitter at goldfinch underscore fi. And Sam is on Twitter at S-E-Y-O-B. And as another quick reminder, don't forget to follow Axiom Venture Lab on Twitter at Axion lab or on our LinkedIn page. And finally, don't forget to check out our upcoming FinTech for Inclusion Summit at fintechforinclusionsummit.com. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks when we'll be joined by Paul Nelson from the Innovation, Research, and Technology Hub at the U.S. Agency for International Development. We'll see you then. Those safeguards protect the financial system from being used to facilitate illicit finance flows, but they also can protect consumers from being exposed to fraud or the collapse of a financial service provider they're relying on.